Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair, round two. It's Halloween Havoc 1994. Cute, how fired up are you that we're finally doing another Halloween Havoc? Throwing a bone to all those sick perverts out there who love Halloween Havoc. I want to be very clear about this. When we finished the last Halloween Havoc, I thought we were actually done with all of the Halloween Havocs. So when you hit me with, no, there's one more left. It was like like finding a present under the tree at Christmas you forgot about, but it's five days later. And you're like, what? This is the wrestling show for sickos. Like Halloween Havoc is made for wrestling perverts like us. I mean, realistically, wrestling perverts is such a great way to explain what we are and what you guys are at home, and we love you for it. Um, But yes, Halloween Havoc is just one of those things where there have been so few genuinely good Halloween Havocs, but there have been tons of crazy, weird-ass Halloween Havocs, and that's so much more important. Just the most grotesque, bizarre, insane wrestling show there ever was. It's... It's what Iowa football is to college football. It's what (laughs) London NFL games are to the NFL. It's just wrestling for sickos. If you're sitting up at 1 o'clock in the morning crunching tape on a 1994 Halloween Havoc, you may be a goddamn pervert who should be on a watch list somewhere. freak. (laughs) But we're getting ahead of ourselves, because first we've got one, two, three current wrestling stories, and oh man, do we have some stuff to talk about this week. First up, AEW Wrestle Dream, another AEW pay-per-view triumph. I mean, I feel like this is this run of pay-per-views they've had from their beginning to now, the only promotion I can compare it to is kind of New Japan from, I don't know, 2015 to 2020 in terms of just an unbroken streak of greatness in these shows they're putting on. And what's comparable between those two is like the depth of the show. Like what these shows have been missing is like really big, like hot main event angles and matches, but like the, the actual matches up and down the card, you can't find a weakness. Like if you watch wrestle dream, there isn't a single moment of that show. You're not going to be entertained. <laughs> And of course, you know, the big story in terms of there wasn't a lot of big advancement on the show, no title changes. But of course, they had a huge debut at the end as Adam Copeland Edge debuted in AEW and he even brought his Alter Bridge music with him. In fact, he's just Edge. It's if we can't yeah. call him Edge, he's Adam yeah. Copeland. But he has rated our superstar Adam Copeland. You think you know him, not me, him. But other than that, everything's exactly the same. Should they just call him Cope instead of Edge? I don't know. Please, God, no. I feel weird when people call are called by, like, their government name. So, like, it, like I don't like talking about, like, people's real names in wrestling. It just feels weird somehow. It's, but, but whatever. Like, if that's the easiest way to do it, then do it. If he wants to come up with a new name, I don't care. He can be fucking Crowbar for all I care. Like, I'm just excited to have him here. Got an absolutely insane pop as he saved Darby Allen and Sting. I felt like Sting and Edge shaking hands was like you and me shaking hands to create this podcast. Literally, like, they, no more two wrestlers could more, like, explain our personal interests in professional wrestling. <laughs> 
It is funny, too, that this was the Inoki tribute show, and I can't think of a wrestler that Inoki probably thought less of than Edge, if I'm really thinking about it. Like, ugh, this maybe show, Sting, motherfucker. Maybe Sting. Yeah, maybe Sting. <laughs> I don't know that he would have been wild about Darby Allen or Christian either. Really? <laughs> what? The only thing about this that was a tribute to Inoki was they had Josh Barnett on the pre-show. I mean, Inoki would have gotten fully erect for Danielson versus Zack Sabre Jr. Yeah, because okay. he loved his Billy Robinson matches very much. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. Um, after the show, Tony Khan announced Copeland would be working a full-time schedule. He signed a multi-year contract with AEW. He'll be on both Dynamite and Collision this week. Those will both have aired by the time this show drops. Um, I guess I should say, as per usual, we're recording this Monday night, so this will be way out of date by the time it airs on Friday. And um, he's going to wrestle Luchasaurus in his first ever AEW match next week on Dynamite, which I think is on a Tuesday because of baseball. I really like Luchasaurus, but doesn't that have the vibe of, like, Kurt Angle goes to TNA and his first opponent is Abyss, and it's just like, really? It's a tribute That's to the that. First guy? Some, th- some, thing, some things are bigger than wrestling. <laughs> uh, is yeah. there anybody but, that you especially want to see him face? Um, oh, a number. Uh, definitely Kenny Omega. And I think he said Omega oh, yeah. is the guy he really wants to wrestle. I want to see I want to see him and Christian team up. I don't know. I don't know if that's that he turns heel or that Christian turns face because I'm a little stinger at heart. I do want to see him against sting. I would absolutely love the idea of Christian and edge teaming up. where like Christian makes fun of your dead dad. And then edge bangs your mom. Like that works for me. (laughs) Oh my God. Edge the scumbag. It does. You got to get them together, whether it's his heels or faces. It's the thing is, it's hard for Christian to go back to being a face at this point. The fact that they are now fully bought in on the joke that all he likes to do is make fun of people's dead dads or grandfathers is like them going from the Noki kids straight to scowling Christian Cage shows me how much they're in on this joke. Somebody definitively pitched, and I don't know if it's Christian or Tony or somebody backstage definitely said, hey, you should shoot on Inoki as kids are here. (laughs) Yeah. Glad they didn't do that. Oh, can't wait to see what we're going to get from Edge and AEW. I think this this is it's incredible. We talked about this, but how much a change of scenery can do for a wrestler? Because I had absolutely zero interest in any more Edge in WWE. I just thought there was nothing left for him. Totally stale. Nothing left for him to do. Whereas as soon as he goes into a different environment, red hot. We talk about this all the time. It's in WWE's best interest to let these yes. people who get super stale leave. Like, honestly, like, I'm excited to see Dolph Ziggler wherever he pops up. I haven't been excited to watch a Dolph Ziggler match in five Ten years. years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> five years seems generous. Yeah. Whenever that Miz match was. And even that was long in the two. <laughs> uh, story number two, WWE Fastlane this Sunday. Um, you know, not a huge pay-per-view. We'll have Seth Rollins uh, defending the world title against Nakamura in a last-man-standing match. Um, sub-main event, John Cena and L.A. Knight against Jimmy Uso and Solo Sokoa. 
and as of the as of now, Monday, Raw is going on right now. They've not announced a lot else. They've announced a women's triple threat and some tag match. Only four matches announced. I'm sure we'll get something with Cody and the Judgment Day and those guys tonight announced. Yeah, on Wikipedia it says that it's Finn and Damian Priest versus Cody and Jey Uso, which is probably okay. what it is, but that's fine. That was ju- that I think that was probably just announced on Raw tonight. I will say this. I appreciate this about Triple H's booking, and I, I hate to like sit here and fillet him every single time we do one of these modern things. Really, really pains me as a like early two thousands internet smart mark. Oh, absolutely. And like, but like the idea that he knows that they're in a boom period, and instead of wasting everything, yeah. like he knows that like. People are going to buy this shit because our product's so fucking hot right now. We don't have to give them the A material every single pay-per-view. Let's take it easy on this pay-per-view. We're loaded up and down the card with over people. John Cena, Cody Rhodes, put them in tag matches. People will still watch it. Yeah, I there's something about – I just dig the like mid-90s in-your-house vibes I'm getting from these B pay-per-views. There's just something fun about it. Like, Feels just like a Shawn Michaels, you know, 1996 title defense when it's Rollins against Nakamura. And the funny thing is, like, imagine those in your houses if the fans actually cared about the product. <laughs> like, that would have been an amazing yeah. idea that worked. They were red hot and sold out everywhere they went. Your champion doesn't need to be on every show. I can't even remember the last time I saw Roman Reigns. Doesn't matter. Product's still oh. hot. All right. Uh, story number three. This is going to be a little bit of a shift in tone, I feel like, for our show. But I got to address this Wrestling Observer article that Meltzer wrote on Matt Riddle because I just thought this was horrible. Um, the lead story in the Wrestling Observer this week was about WWE's releases. But most of it was focused on Matt Riddle, and it really seemed like it was just Meltzer openly campaigning for AEW to hire him. And I cannot wrap my head around some of the journalistic decisions that were made here. Meltzer refers to Riddle as having, quote unquote, baggage and, quote, he had numerous incidents over the years of complaints from women after relationships had fallen apart. What he's alluding to without saying it there is Riddle was accused of rape by indie wrestler Candy Cartwright. To refer to that as baggage and never address the actual allegation is crazy to me. And, like, the myriad of things he's done, like, from uh, accusing her of, like, sexually assaulting him and being a stalker, uh, uh, that weird shit that he did with the cops where he, like, tried to report them for a crime or some crap. Yeah, I mean, that seems to be what led to his release, and we don't have the full story there, but it's the whole thing is very strange. Like, it's clear that this is a person who, like, you do not want in your company. Like, God, no. even if he wasn't a fucking rapist, which, by the way, is not something that I can just push aside. But, like, having somebody who every year, like, clockwork has something like this happen. Why multiple, do you want multiple suspension, multiple suspensions for drug test failures? And WWE's not testing for marijuana anymore. Like, he's not failing for marijuana at this point. Yeah, and that's not the kind of thing where it's like Jeff Hardy, where it's just like, well, maybe he'll get his shit together. It's just drugs. He's not like a violent man, whatever, whatever. No, these are chaos crimes. 
Like this man is a chaos demon inside of your building. Why would you want that? And for Meltzer, the answer is because he's friends with Matt Riddle. And that's very obviously what this is. And so all the things that people have said about the Bucks and Meltzer, about how he takes it easy on him and all of his reporting is skewed because of their friendship, I don't really think those things are true. But this time, it's fucking obvious. Yeah, like, there's no question, you know, he has a part a part towards the bottom where it says that, like, every wrestling promotion and MMA promotion in the world has reached out to him since his release. And zero question that, that the source on that is Riddle, and he's just uncritically repeating that. Like, are you telling me for fucking real that UFC has reached out to Matt Riddle? Because no, the shit they have not. Of course not. Um <sighs> Look, the wrestling industry has historically been a haven for men who abuse women and, let's be honest, children. Yeah. Thankfully, this is starting to change, but not nearly fast enough. And stuff like this reporting from Meltzer is why. That we're just going to excuse it. We're going to... It's baggage. It's drama. It's not a big deal. I, How are we still doing this in the year 2023? Just to... Make something clear. One of you, if you own a business, one of the responsibilities you have legally is you have to create a safe working environment for your yep. employees. If you bring in someone who's been accused of raping one of his fellow wrestlers, how can you claim you're creating a safe working environment for your female talent? And like specifically from Meltzer's perspective on this, it's impossible to go much further talking about this without pointing to the long and storied history of deep misogyny he's shown towards women over the entire course of his newsletter. And like, it's a lot easier to dismiss these kind of crimes and assume that she's lying about the rape charges or and all of that stuff. If you don't fundamentally have a lot of respect for women and I'm sorry, but like he has displayed time and time again. Yeah. That he does not like easy to laugh it off, but man, just the stuff he would write when I, whenever I listen to something to wrestle with and there's uh, something about Sable and Conrad quotes, the stuff Meltzer would say about her in the observer. It is ludicrous that he printed it. Like this is some stuff that you see on like deep 4chan boards where guys are like, I'm going to murder this woman because she's so sexy and it pisses me off. Like guys, like this, this is a person who has a problem with women in wrestling. Like specifically, Maybe he's not like this to women that he meets every day. I don't know. But something about a woman when she puts on tights, like, gets to him in some way I don't understand. Yeah. All right. With all that said, let's uh, continue on to Halloween Havoc 1994. I am so excited to be back covering Halloween Havoc, covering this wild era of pre-Nitro WCW. These might be my favorite shows we've done because they're just ludicrous. The stuff we end up talking about. What a, I don't know if there's ever been. just Not that it was ever good, but it was always fascinatingly weird what WCW was up to before the Nitro era. So much of it is like it's still the same WCW from the early 90s. It's the same people, but like it's being driven by this whole new thing. And so like watching these guys that we watched on like 1991 WCW shows try to be part of the Hogan era is just fucking bizarre. <laughs> try to wrestle with the lights turned on. 
Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, oh, God, I got to get in shape and, like, get some gear. Because these people universally look like shit. <laughs> uh, this is the follow-up to Bash at the Beach 1994, where Hulk Hogan made his WCW debut by beating Ric Flair to win the WCW title. That show did a gigantic buy rate for a WCW pay-per-view at the time. It did, I think, almost 250,000 buys. Hogan came in and doubled their pay-per-view business overnight. I, For all Hulk Hogan has been dogged for being overpaid for this and for that, like, dude came in and drew. And people would shit on him for getting paid too much. It's like, he literally drew these buys. Like, he got a piece of the pie he baked. Yeah, and let's be perfectly clear. Nobody else drew these buys. This wasn't even fucking close. Nobody had been drawn buys for years before this. Now, how many Ric Flair shows, shows headlined by Ric Flair they'd done that barely did 100,000 buys? Most of them. <laughs> yeah. So... A couple weeks after that, in August, on Clash of the Champions, they did a Flair versus Hogan rematch uh, live on TBS. Hogan was attacked by a masked man early in the night, hitting the knee with a pipe. I don't know if this was meant to allude to the Tanya Harding thing, but they specifically shout that out on this show because that happened in Detroit where this pay-per-view takes place. That is funny. As Bobby Heenan goes on about every single thing that has ever happened yes. in the history of the city of Detroit, they bring that up because it happened 50 feet away from where they're standing. Hogan came out to wrestle Flair in the main event there. He lost by count out. In theory, that evened the score at one to one and set the stage for the rubber match here. I think if you were going to really try to get the show to draw, Flair probably needed to win the belt there, but I don't think Hogan was going to be into that. That is a hard sell for him. Like, I just yeah. got here. You really want me to lose it right now to him? Um, the masked man attacked Hogan again after the match. Sting made the save. You know, Hogan's best buddy, Sting. Sting has no role on this show other than to be Hogan's friend. I love that idea because clearly they were like, all right, you're going to be buddies with Sting. And like Hogan looks over at Sting and is like, all right, that guy, fine. And they're just like, all right, so what should we do with him? He's just like, he can sit over in the corner and be a fucking Hulkamaniac. Yeah. No Sting match on this show, which is kind of unbelievable for Halloween Havoc. I mean, my assumption is just that, like, I don't know that Hogan was deliberately, like, trying to de-push Sting. Though Sting is the only direct competitor to Hogan at being Hogan style on this show. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised. At Fall Brawl on September 19th, they did a segment where Hogan and Flair agreed to a Steel Cage retirement match at Halloween Havoc. Steel Cage all on board. Hate the retirement match stipulation because, uh, spoiler, Ric Flair doesn't retire after he loses this match. He doesn't. What? Yeah. Ric Flair wrestled last year. It's 2023. <laughs> the only person on the face of God's green earth who thought that he was retiring at the end of this match was David Meltzer. Man, Meltzer got real. I'll talk about it after the match. Meltzer got really <laughs> indignant about this. And it's just, I, I just can't wrap my head around the idea that he actually thought this. How could anyone have bought this? It's preposterous. It really is. Um, 
I can and like literally we're only one month into this feud and you're already going to the retirement angle. You don't want to try to get like another match out of this or maybe something down the road. I mean, Hogan already beat him once. Once he beats him again, I think it's over. I mean, then like a smart promoter might be like, that's when you team him up, like turn player face (laughs) and then he can turn on him down the road. Get Sherry a new man. I mean, this worked great with uh, Macho Man and Sherry when Savage had to retire. The funniest thing is, the best choice for that was Stone Cold Steve Austin. Um, Flair, I guess maybe the other guy we can say who believed this was real. Flair reportedly was afraid he was being double-crossed and they were actually going to stop booking him. So as a condition of doing the job, he insisted on getting a two-year contract extension. I would say that that was, like, hilariously, like, paranoid of him, but this did basically happen to him with Jim Hurd, so I don't know that I can blame him, really. And, you know, get locked in. This was, I mean, he understands this is his moment of maximum negotiate of maximum leverage for his negotiation. Like it, it seemed it, it was Meltzer would report that it was up in the air, whether the match was going to happen, you know, the week leading up to the show. And Bischoff actually said that was about right on his podcast said like the negotiations with flair were that tense and Flair was threatening to not do the match if they didn't get the contract done. I mean, he, again, I think it's Flair recognizing this is his moment of maximum leverage. After he loses this match, he's not going to have nearly the same leverage to negotiate this new contract. Oh, yeah. After this, they don't need him for anything else. No. So September 19th, they did a press conference in Detroit to announce the show. Of course, they announced Hogan versus Flair in the cage. They also had Muhammad Ali at the press conference and announced he would be at the show. They had uh, worked out an agreement with Ali where they would make a donation to his foundation. And it's a short trip for Ali because at this point he was living in southwest Michigan. He was only living about two hours from Detroit. Wow. Yeah. I Getting Ali involved in this thing is pretty incredible. I mean, he did not. He's not quite gone into seclusion yet because he does the um, Atlanta Olympics two years after this. But this is very near the end of the point where he would make public appearances. He became very private as he got further into the end of his life. And his Parkinson's got worse and worse. I mean, even on this show, you can see, I mean, he doesn't speak on the microphone or anything. You can see he's starting to shake. Yeah, I mean, he, he's very, care, like, clearly, like, keeping control of himself when he's standing in the ring, and he's doing yeah. a pretty good job, but you can tell that it's a rough time for him. Um, they managed to gross $40,000 in ticket sales on the first day they put the tickets on sale, which I cannot overstate how big that is for WCW at the time. That's That would be the whole house for a lot of their pay-per-views back then. Did it one day. Yep. A couple big stories. A big shakeup at the announce desk as Jesse Ventura is gone and Bobby Heenan has replaced him. I think there's a couple issues at play here. Ventura and Hogan, famously not friends. Um, Jesse, not the easiest guy to work with in WCW in this era. Never seemed particularly happy there. And I think once Hogan came in, his days 
were definitely numbered. The story of him getting fired has been told many times that they were at Disney doing one of their TV tapings and it was time to go and they just could not find him. And they were searching all over the building for him and finally found him like napping in a closet. And that was end of the road. Bischoff fired him. And that's understandable. I mean, it's difficult to keep somebody in house when they do something like that. But again, like the magic thing that you said was that when Hogan arrived, because those two were not going to stay in the same promotion together. No. And I mean, I don't know that Bobby Heenan is an upgrade, but it's a fresh voice. I don't know. Heenan in WCW was never all that motivated either, although I thought he was pretty good on this show. He's definitely trying. I don't think he's like, he he will eventually eventually settle into kind of like a role that works where he's just like the third man. And he's just kind of like comedically doing his like breakdowns of like the instant replays at the end of the match. And that's a fun role for him. But like here he's like going for it. But like he and Shivani don't really have great chemistry. Um, another big story, which honestly relates to some other things we've talked about. Missy Hyatt sued WCW for sexual for harassment. She said she uh, was frequently sexually harassed, paid less than the male announcers, and wrongfully terminated from the company. She said that the treatment she received from Eric Bischoff changed significantly after she broke up with Bischoff's friend Jason Hervey, and she alleged that a photo of her breasts being exposed was blown up and posted in the WCW production studio. She also alleged that Bischoff touched her inappropriately. Now, I don't know that all of those things happened, but for years and years, people pretty much either like denied this or just kind of poo-pooed it. And then Bischoff, what, came out on his podcast and basically said, yeah, all that shit did happen. (laughs) So, yeah, on his podcast in 2019, which insane that this happened bischoff said the following things he called missy hyatt a bimbo a horse face said she quote got passed around more than a joint at a grateful dead concert uh talked about her becoming a stripper porn star after leaving wcw he also acknowledged that the central claim about the nude photo was true but tried to claim it was no big deal what an absolute unbelievable piece of shit Eric Bischoff is. Again, it's absolutely stunning to me that, like, there's no human resources that got a hold of this at all. They kind of just, like, pay her off and, like, she goes on her way. Like, it's incredible. This is the kind of thing that would cost everyone in a seat of power their job if it happened today. Back then, eh, fuck it, whatever. <laughs> Even at Turner, which everybody thinks was so corporate, so liberal, so politically correct, they let this fly. They just settled the lawsuit and moved on. I mean, even putting aside all the other stuff, just the idea that in your workplace somebody posts a nude photo of somebody who works there and you as the boss don't do anything about it is insane. Because you think it's fucking funny. Because you think you're one of the boys. And you think she deserves it because she broke up with your friend or something. It's just fucking crazy. Like, this is a... You want to talk about toxic workplaces? That was a fucking toxic workplace. And again, we want to believe that, like, Eric Bischoff was creating a safe environment for the women who worked at WCW. Sheesh. Yeah. (sighs) All right. Somehow, 
we've got a lightning round to do. Are you ready for the depths of insanity we're going to go to with a early 90s WCW lightning round? I don't think I've had a single lightning round that we've done from the 90s that didn't literally blow my mind. So I'm not sure that I am ready for this, but here we go. UFC 3 featured the debut of Ken Shamrock and drew an estimated 150,000 pay-per-view buys. God, 150,000? Yeah, that's remarkable considering they didn't have TV. I think that outdrew all of their WCW shows in 1993, so that's fucking incredible. I'm sure it did. Meltzer addressed questions about UFC's legitimacy, saying he didn't know whether or not it was actually a shoot. I mean, I appreciate his honesty, I guess, but, like, also, that's fair. Because if you recall, like, the first couple of UFCs had, like, random-ass motherfuckers on them, like— Guys who said they knew karate but didn't really know karate. I'm <laughs> Guys I'm saying they had black belts and bar brawling. I'm obsessed with that guy who showed up in a karate gi and actually did not know any karate whatsoever and fought <laughs> in like a work- deathmatch tournament. Just working a gimmick, brother. Oh, man. Uh, Meltzer speculated the masked man stalking Hogan was Kurt Hennig. That would have been way better than who it turned out to be. God, if it's Kurt Hennig versus Hogan, again, because then you're just knocking off dream matches we never really got, right? Like, we never got Flair versus Hogan in WWE. We never really got Perfect versus Hogan. That's what you should be doing with Hogan. All the matches that Vince didn't. Warlord, Tito Santana, and Sergeant Slaughter all reportedly visited WCW shows looking for work. And they didn't take Warlord? Fucking assholes. Honky Tonk Man said in an interview he had been working as a gym teacher. That's why he was in such good shape on this show. Because he actually is in, like, pretty phenomenal shape for him on this show. Can you imagine if Honky Tonk Man was your gym teacher? No. (laughs) Seems like he would be the meanest, nastiest gym teacher imaginable. I'm just trying to think of all, like, the the filthy, despicable things I've heard him say on shoot interviews and just, like, (laughs) my football coach saying that shit to me. Can you imagine the promo he cut on you when you couldn't do a pull-up? <laughs> He's probably pretty good at it, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah. Fucking pull-ups cost me the Presidential Physical Fitness Award. I just couldn't do them. Wasn't strong enough in the upper body. I also could not do them. Um, I was like <laughs> gold standard for sit-ups, but I could not do pull-ups to save my life. <laughs> Oh, Meltzer speculated WCW could be sued for false advertising for claiming Flair would retire due to losing. Dave, it's fake wrestling. What are we talking about here? As if this was the first fake retirement that had ever happened. Shut up. Terry Funk is on this show. There's never been a real one. There's never been a real one in all of wrestling history. Can you name anybody who lost a retirement match and actually stayed retired? I mean, Shawn Michaels might be the closest because he only did one more match. I mean, Flair never wrestled for that company again. But like in terms of stayed retired, no. Barring some sort of injury, absolutely not. No. (laughs) And half the time, the career-ending injuries didn't turn out to be career-ending. See half of AEW's roster. The funny thing is, even guys that we know are going to stay retired, like Undertaker, like even his last match wasn't a retirement match. (laughs) No, he won. Yeah. Oh, man. 
a WWF show in Montreal that was promoted as Jacques Rougeau's retirement match drew 18,000 fans. Yes, Jacques Rougeau's retirement outdrew Flair's. Holy shit. Jacques Rougeau this, did not actually retire. He wrestled Hollywood. Remember, he beats Hogan in a retirement match a few years after that in Montreal. I love the idea, though, that, like, there have been times in wrestling history where, like, a guy gets so unbelievably over in his, like, small territory, but only that territory. Like, even if he went to Ontario, nobody would buy a ticket no. to his fucking show. But in Montreal, he's a god. Herb Abrams' UWF presented the Blackjack Brawl from the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, Nevada. They drew a crowd of about 500 people, roughly half of them comps. I bet you guys thought we weren't going to find an excuse to talk about the UWF again, but you were wrong, motherfuckers. Meltzer reported WCW was negotiating with U5 for a working agreement. What the fuck would they what? have done? Although, here's the thing. Bischoff like, was like, I didn't even know what U5 was. And it's like, Vader was the U5 champion like six months before this, wasn't he? Yes, he was. This is my favorite thing about Bischoff. Is he's just like, yeah. okay, we definitely need talent from other places, but I don't know shit from shit. So I'm just going to be like, hey... Random Japanese promotion I read about one time. Come on over and we'll do a deal with you. That, you of course. Might... Yeah, they end up signing a working agreement with New Japan, which is a much better fit. I want you guys to imagine Takata gets in the ring with fucking Hogan and just blasts his brains out of his forehead. <laughs> oh, man. Carl Malone managed Hogan for his match at a Salt Lake City house show against Flair. Mm, brother, bring another mailman. Might draw a little bit of money. <laughs> worked at, worked four years later at Bash at the Beach. It's funny, too, because, like, in 94, like, Malone's definitely a very famous athlete. But, like, he'll get way more famous when the yeah. Jazz get way better later. So that wouldn't have been the, the right balls, time. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bruno San Martino met Bill Clinton at the White House as part of the Italian Americans Foundation dinner. Other guests included Alan Alda, Lee Iacocca, Sylvester Stallone, Frank Sinatra, and Liza Minnelli. Do you think that that's literally just a dinner of all the people Bill Clinton could name who were Italians? Oh, probably just a bunch of people he wanted to meet. Although he <laughs> he probably wouldn't have known Bruno. Bruno didn't wrestle in Arkansas. This is one of those fascinating things. Like sometimes I just sit around and wonder, like, did this famous person know about uh, any wrestler at all? Like, for example, there's no way that Michael Jordan didn't know about Ric Flair because they're the only two famous people from Charlotte, yeah, they're North, from Carolina. North Carolina. <laughs> yeah, like. I could imagine Bill Clinton probably watched wrestling. Like he grew up in a trailer park in Arkansas. You have to imagine he watched Mid South wrestling. Oh yeah, he was watching watching the Junkyard watching Dog. The yeah. I bet you if you said I mean, the words Junkyard Dog to Bill Clinton, he'd pop for it. I mean, he was like the governor of Arkansas by the time JYD was the Mid South champion, so they may have met or something. Oh, that's awesome. After JYD won the title, he could have invited him to the governor's mansion. It's the kind of shit they would do in the South. Jimmy Carter used to go to Georgia Championship Wrestling shows in Atlanta. Did he really? Yeah. Jordan, he was – oh, there's this insane story about how he um, he wanted to have uh, the masked superstar – or either the masked superstar or Mr. Wrestling come visit the White House – 
but they couldn't do it because he couldn't he wouldn't take the mask off for the Secret Service. No, that's fucking I'm gonna write, wild. Someday I'm gonna write a book called Wrestling with Politics that's just gonna be these kinds of stories. Like I, I can't think of like another person who is in politics. By the way, guys, Steve's in politics. Uh, who is as deep into wrestling as you are? I think you're the only person who could write that book. There's a surprising number of people who work in politics who are into pro wrestling. There's actually a lot of crossover. But like, it's the kind of thing where like you genuinely don't want to let on that you know that's not the kind of thing that people in suits want yeah. to talk about. You know. Sick perverts. <laughs> We're, they're the ones crunching the Halloween Havoc tape at 1 a.m. over some old Chinese food in between doing their paperwork. Meltzer reported the original plan for Starcade had been for Hogan to lose the title to Sting. What? That sounds fucking awesome. Well, here's the thing. I think that's because, remember, Hogan's original deal was only for three matches. So he was going to have to lose on the way out. And that makes all that's like he beats Flair and then loses to Sting makes total sense to me. So that's why he's treating Sting like such a fucking jabroni. So that like, even though this guy's going to beat me, don't, I don't want you guys to think he's like good or anything. I, I think by this point they've worked out a con like a longer term contract. I think after the first match was so successful, there was no way they weren't going to keep him around. So that would make sense because that's why like he they're building to like him and Sting like being friends so they can do that as the last match and they can raise each other's hands on the way out. But like since now that Hogan knows he's Sting, Sting's just kind of like there because they're not Jake. doing that. When do you think Hogan just like uh, brother? Uh, I did sign that contract for you, and yeah. I think maybe there's something you could do for me. <laughs> Oh, Beefcake's really been on my ass about wanting to get a main event. Uh, I think it might finally be time for that. Or do you think he was just like, oh, what do you think about me wrestling Beefcake at Starcade? And Bischoff was just like, sure. Bischoff <laughs> couldn't say care. no to him. I also just don't know that... The global... Like, Go ahead, finish. Not, there's just not that much on this card else. So, like, I guess I can see how you talk yourself into it. The Global Wrestling Federation officially folded. Any great, me- any good memories of the Global Wrestling Federation? No, I mean Gary Hart Isn't was this, the one most associated with it. Is this where we had Jer- Jerry Lynn versus uh, Dynamite Kid, or not Dynamite uh, oh, Kid? Oh, uh, Lightning Kid. Kid. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's basically all it produced. Was uh, I'm pretty sure that Austin Foley. And X-Pac yeah. and Jerry Lynn all came from the dying days of that promotion. Yeah. Like, they were on ESPN. They had some buzz, but they just had no work. They had no model by which they were ever going to make money because it was just a TV show. And TV rights fees weren't a big thing back then. And, like, running in Dallas after the Von Erichs, man. Yeah. Like, just a fucking dead man's idea. Mick Foley began selling jackets that he called, quote, cactus jackets. You know what? That's not bad, actually. That, that's no, pretty good. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> Meltzer was, like, promoting him in The Observer, helping Mick out. What'd they look like? Can I get a cactus jacket these days? You should Google, yeah, see if there's a cactus jacket cactus floating around. Jacket. Hogan and several other WCW wrestlers reportedly left a Salt Lake City restaurant without paying their tab. This was covered by the local media. I bet that cheapskate Malone was with them. God, what a bunch of assholes. 
Like, I get, I feel like Hulk Hogan is the ultimate celebrity who definitely does not tip, right? Oh, yeah. Honky, actually, actually, I remember seeing a Honky Tonk Man shoot interview where he was disgusted when he went out to, like, lunch with King Kong Bundy and Bundy didn't tip. Like, when even the Honky Tonk Man thinks you're a dirtbag, you've really crossed the line. Even cheap-ass Mick Foley when he went out with Vader was just like, Vader fucking tipping, tipping all these people. Yeah. Like, fucking Vader was, like, tipping people, like, 200 bucks for a soda. Like, <laughs> oh, good for Vader. Oh. Uh, WRAL TV in Raleigh did a report on fans boycotting Starcade because of Flair being forced into retirement. I again, I don't think that's really a thing that they were going to do. Oh, gotta love, gotta love the Carolinas. And finally, okay, so, the hammer. Hold on, right before the hammer. The cactus jackets. I found the cactus. I found the catalog for the cactus jackets, where it's literally just Foley and his wife posing in the pictures, and they're all just like leather jackets with fringe on them. I get. I guess he or his wife were probably making them. I guess. Probably, yeah. This is wild. I wish I could get one of these. Finally, the hammer. Sergeant Craig Pittman was reported to be in the running to compete at UFC 3. Meltzer said that WCW had offered him $60,000 to do it. Obviously, this did not happen. Wait. They were going to put this motherfucker with no real training in UFC. I mean, again, in the beginning of UFC, you could probably win a fight or two just by being a pretty tough guy. Meltzer had a long thing about, like, what wrestlers would do well. And he mentioned Steve Williams, which makes it's kind of hilarious in hindsight that Steve Williams actually got in the brawl for all and got the fuck knocked out of him by Bart Gunn. Although he was pretty old at that point in his defense. Also, that was a boxing fight primarily. Yeah. So, like, it's not it's not really he the done, same he would have done much better. He would have done much better in MMA where he could have used his wrestling skills more. Exactly. But especially in the early days of MMA, before Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu became what MMA was, mostly it was just like a bunch of wrestlers dominating the other guys because the other guys throwing shitty kicks and didn't know how to wrestle. All right. So to get into the show, it's uh, Sunday, October the 23rd, 1994. We're at the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit, Michigan. Uh, we got 14,000 in attendance, uh, about 8,500 paid for a $189,000 gate, both one of the largest houses and gates in WCW history to this point. Also, Meltzer would report that 3,000 comped tickets didn't show, which he labeled a staggering number, although compared to, I mean, doesn't sound that bad. I guess it's a percentage that's much more than like the 8,000 or whatever that didn't show up for um, all in. And like, there's a number of reasons why that can happen from scalpers, but like, if it's a big enough number, it at least somewhat has to represent the idea of like fans buying the tickets and still deciding not to go. Well, these are, yeah, these are 3,000 comps. So these are tickets yeah. they gave away. And like, comps not showing isn't that big a surprise. And you just got it for free. You weren't even really interested in it. But still, that's pretty much a bummer that you gave away 3,000 free tickets. And those people were like, no, I'd rather not do that, even if it's free. 
I mean, the other thing to take into consideration, Joe Lewis Arena was in downtown Detroit, and this is a time where a lot of folks yeah. from the suburbs were not really interested in going to an event in downtown Detroit at night. It might cost you something to go there. It might yeah. not be free after all. <laughs> Your car might not be there when you get back. Man, one time after an AEW show, it took me about 30 minutes to find my car, and I was starting to get a little worried. Not that, not even necessarily that it was gone. More, I'm just like, I don't really want to be wandering around down here after the crowd is gone. Literally, Steve texted me like, <laughs> I was Detroit already at home. <laughs> I was like at home an hour away, and Steve was like, I'm still wandering around Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, the show does a 0.97 buy rate for 220,000 buys. Uh, Meltzer would report the expectation was more like a 1.5 to a 2. If that's true, I just, I don't even, I know they promoted this as a retirement match, but I don't know how you could think that the rematch was going to outdraw the original. That's just naive to me. Yeah, just completely ridiculous. Like, it's not going to happen. And, like, this is pretty big. I mean, I think it's their biggest one until what like halloween oh, havoc 96 maybe probably yeah it's a while before they surpass this by the way before we move on to this i am contractually <laughs> obligated to tell you that you've triggered stump steve stump no! steve oh god how so we have talked often about how starcade and halloween havoc are sort of neck and neck oftentimes for being the definitive pay-per-view of wcw and we've often said on our podcast that we think it's pretty definitively halloween havoc so i went and pulled up what the buy numbers were for each halloween havoc and starcade from 1989 to 2000 and it's actually a tie six starcades out through halloween havoc six halloween havocs out through starcade and i want you to tell me which is which oh from 89 to 2000 who won the buy rate war Okay, 89, Havoc 89 is Sting and Flair against Muda and Funk in a cage. And Starcade 89 is those crazy tournaments. I'm going to guess that Havoc 89 outdrew Starcade 89. That's correct, 175 okay. to 130. Yeah, nobody pays for tournaments. Um 1990s, the Havoc. closest. There's only 5,000 buys separating them. Okay. Havoc 90 is Sting versus Sid, and um, Starcade 90 is Sting versus the Black Scorpion. I do love Sid, but I'm going to say the intrigue of um, who the Black Scorpion was carried the day. That Not is correct. Fact. Okay. 165 so, to 160. So. Get out Drew Halloween Havoc. That's correct. Okay, so I'm 2-0 so far. Yes, you are. Um, Havoc 91 has the Chamber of Whores. The main event was uh, Lex Luger versus Ron Simmons, I think. But I think so. Starcade 91 is the first battle ball, I believe. Um Shit, would the intrigue of the Battle Bowl out? I think that I have this feeling like the Chamber of Horrors. No, here's the thing. Just because I kind of know what's coming, I'm going to say that I think I bet this Starcade out drew Halloween Havoc. It did, 155 to 120. 
You almost wow. talked yourself out of that one. Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about what's coming because I know the ne- the next year at Halloween Havoc, Jake and Sting do one of the, like the biggest buy rate in company history to that point. So Havoc Havoc '92 definitely outdrew Starcade '92. 165 to 95. I think that's the book. The second biggest disparity, or the biggest, actually. It's one of them, yeah. Yeah. So, um, 93, Halloween Havoc 93. Oh, this is definitely, this is Vader, Vader versus Flair at Starcade has to have outdrawn uh, Vader versus Cactus Jack, right? 115 to 100, yep. God, those are miserable. Um. God, that was the first time they were promoting Flair's retirement match, and it only drew 115,000 buys. And now we have this show versus Hogan versus the the Booty Man. Okay, yeah, this obviously outdrew Hogan versus the Booty Man. Yes, it did. Um, 95, Hogan versus the Giant main event Starcade versus the... WCW New Japan show. I'm, I'm going to go with Halloween Havoc for that one, too. It, it was Halloween Havoc. You're undefeated so far. Okay, we got five. 96, uh, Hogan versus Piper at Starcade must have outdrawn Hogan versus Savage at Halloween yeah. Havoc. 345 and, to 250. Both of those would be the biggest one that they've ever done. Yeah. Um. 97 is Hogan versus Sting at Starcade, and that's the biggest buy rate they ever did. So that that outdrew Havoc. Yeah, 700 to 405. Again, both records. Yeah. Um, 90 Starcade 98 is Goldberg against Nash, and that did a big number. But Halloween Havoc. So here's the thing: I've got five Havocs so far, and I've got one more. But my suspicion is it's pr- it could be 99, but not 98. Starcade definitely outdrew Halloween Havoc. You only have four Halloween Havoc so far. 89, really? 92, 94, 95. 89. 92. 94, okay. 95. Okay. Um. Ooh, this one could call. I'm gonna guess that. 99 and 2000 Halloween Havoc probably outdrew Starcade both times. And that That's is my correct. final answer. Oh, yep. I got it. You got oh it undefeated, God. a whole thing. Wow. Son of a bitch. I All can't right. believe so, I actually got that. Now, and I got to like say, the, most of those were shots and like educated guesses, but most of those, like, I don't really know, know what. Halloween Havoc 91 did for pay-per-view buys. No, the only advantage you have is that you have like a photographic memory for random WCW <laughs> main events. So you know what the main event was of every single yeah. one of these shows. And you could just kind of guess from there, like what probably I drew, but like 99, 2000, I bet it was like 75,000 buys versus 60,000. Uh, yeah. I think if I made you go the other way, you may, you may have stumbled at 2000. It was 70 to 50. Yes. Uh, yeah. That was Halloween Havoc over Starcade. Ooh. Okay. So just, I mean, comparatively, this show does 220,000 buys. The previous year's Halloween Havoc had only done a hundred thousand. That was Vader versus Cactus Jack. Not and surprising. Next- this drew a lot more. And next year we'll only do 120. So like you can say whatever yeah. you want about Hogan and Flair business. and what they are like here. Like they're they're blowing it out of the park business wise. 
So the company would have grossed 2.1 million from this. Hogan would have gotten about a $250,000 bonus from the buy rate on top of the 600,000 he was getting per match. So nice payday for the Hulkster, 850 grand uh, for one night is pretty good money. If you can get it, I'd certainly do it. It's good. uh, It's good money if you can get it, man. (laughs) Yeah. On commentary, Tony Tony Schiavone and Bobby Heenan. Heenan in a neck brace was very funny. I know he had had neck surgery when he went to WCW because he said that was one of the big reasons he went there was they gave, as an announcer, they gave him health insurance so he could finally afford to get neck surgery and not be in excruciating pain all the time. I do love that, like, he's in there for, like, five days and he's like, all right, time to get that fucking surgery I've needed for 25 years. He'd been living with his neck. His neck. I mean, I think he had had neck problems for a long time, but it got really bad. The warrior hurt him really bad in like '89 or something like that, and he'd just been in excruciating pain ever since then. You also forget how much he was like slouching and stuff during that period yeah. in like WWE, because like when he's in the neck brace, he's like fucking tall. Like you forget that yeah. he's actually like a large man. Hey, dude, he was a wrestler. Yeah. 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 So the couple things he said, I mean, he got more money from WCW. WWF was trying to do, you know, payroll cuts at the time. So he got more money. He could get insurance and get his neck fixed. And then the other thing was his daughter was going to school, I think, at the University of Alabama. And if he was living in Atlanta, it would be really easy for him to drive. It's only about a two hour drive to Tuscaloosa from there. So he'd be able to go visit her a lot, which that's very sweet, actually. Yeah, I'm glad he made the decision. I'm, it's clear that he didn't really give a shit about this product after a certain point, but it'd be hard to say that it wasn't good for both sides that that he came. Yeah, he got a yeah got a nice got a nice deal out of it. You know, got to be on what was the hotter product for most of the time he was there. Yeah, he jumped at just the right time, and then he left at just the right time. On main event, which was the pre-show, that was WCW's uh, Sunday night show. I don't know if that was, that was either seven to eight or six, may have been two hours. It may have been six to eight on Sunday nights. Um, Booker T defeated Brian Armstrong. Yes, the road dog. Okay, so I wish that had been on this show, because when we go through the matches that are on this show, I would have watched that over basically all of them. Uh, the opening promo is, of course, all about Flair versus Hogan. They cut into the arena, and they've actually got a little bit of pyro, and the crowd looks pretty good. It's not sold out, because sellout at the Joe would be more like 18,000. But, you know, 14's a pretty good crowd. It looks good in there. And it's a pretty hot crowd all night long, yeah. which is impressive. Like, they, this is clearly a Hogan and Flair crowd. They don't give a shit about most of the rest of the show, but nope. they're generally enthusiastic. No, in the, the WWF, in uh, Detroit was more, always, I think of that as a big WWF town. Of course, Hogan drew monster numbers with Andre the Giant at WrestleMania 3, which hilariously Heenan actually references in his little opening monologue. He sure um, does. That. One of the things he lists is how WWE did a thing that WCW <laughs> could never possibly do. Never absolutely ever do um so shivani heenan and mean gene okerlund welcome us to the show i liked this i liked that they had mean gene there and i think they were actually playing this opening you know kind of discussion over the arena pa because the crowd reacted to what they said a few times 
I've always been confused why they don't do that at the beginning of the shows, why they don't play the announcers, uh, okay, commentary see, to the crowd. I was never sure because there are only a couple times during the course of the show where you could hear it echoing back. And I think maybe they were just choosing certain times to let they the crowd hear yeah, it. They only did, they only did it. Yeah. They didn't, they never do it during the matches. I, I, I can understand that. I think that might be kind of distracting, but for something like this, where we're just going to be at the announce desk for a few minutes, they should play that for the crowd. Cause otherwise the crowd's just kind of stand, which I mean, that happens with wrestling shows when you're there live, there's a lot of just standing around. Like when we were at SummerSlam and like no one oh, came shit. out and even did like an intro or ring announcing yeah, or anything until weird. the first match started. It was weird as shit. Um, he then starts rattling off the great history of Detroit sports and it's all stuff from the 60s and 70s. It's like Denny <laughs> McClain, Alex Harris, Bob Lanier, like could have thrown in, you know, some current stuff, some Barry Sanders, Steve Eiserman, even the Bad Boy Pistons. I mean, it wasn't quite the right time for the Red Wings, was it? Like that that's a little yeah, bit later. Steve Eiserman was still one of the best players in the NHL. They 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 make the finals for the first time in 95, so it's, you know, it's that season, but it hasn't happened yet. It's, you know, the next summer. Okay, but if you think about the, how the years work, it's really not that far off talking about those guys than it would be if you went to Detroit now and were just like, Ben Wallace and Richard Hamilton. Fair point. <laughs> um, Detroit sports, of course, have hit pretty hard times in recent years. So we do spend, I mean, we did say said goodbye to Miguel Cabrera on Sunday. And uh, yeah, um, a lot of nostalgia, other than the Lions. It's very strange when the Lions are the pride of Detroit. Oh, yes, very much so. Uh, and then Graham Brown performs the national anthem. Do you have any idea who this is? no. WCW would always bring in like these random dudes who were like, for all I know, this is just like one of their roadies who just came out and sang a song, which if you're going to do that, you may as well have had Brian Armstrong sing the damn thing. Uh, we see Ali in the front row and he's there for most of the night. They do take him back. At one point he leaves. I think it's I think he goes back like for one of the matches to kind of get ready for when they bring him in the ring. But, yeah, he's there pretty much the whole night, like sitting opposite the hard camera. Yep. Opening match. We've got Johnny B. Bad defending the TV title against who? The Honky Tonk Man. Well, he's the honky tonk man. man. He's the honky tonk man. I'm cool. I, I love that they had him. Like, do a new version of his WWE. It's got slightly different words, but it's the exact same song. But, hey, Jimmy Hart wrote that song, so why isn't he allowed to bring it with him? So, this, aside from the main event, this is easily the most famous match on this show. And that's really just shoot interviews that have gone along with it. Dude, Eric Bischoff and the Honky Tonk Man fucking hate each other and it's hilarious. Yep. Like, for whatever reason, this thing has just stuck with both of these guys, and they both relish telling this story. Of course, both of them tell wildly different stories of their interaction, where each of them comes off much cooler than in the other guy's story. Obviously, yes. So, 
Honky Tonk Man was either he was brought in either because of Hogan or Jimmy Hart. Either of those would make sense. Bischoff says he didn't want to bring him in, but you know he was doing a favor to either Hogan or Jimmy Hart. Um, he's brought in. He's on a nightly deal, but he doesn't have a contract. So Honky, I think Honky has a legitimate beef here that this company has everybody under the sun under contracts. Like they probably still had the Iron Sheik under contract and had used him for years. They'd have guys under deals for years and years and never use them, but they won't give Honky a contract. So I think he has kind of a legitimate gripe about that. I mean, it's very fair. The only problem with that is that, like, Honky Tonk Man is, like, one of the most miserable fucking bitter scumbags <laughs> in the history of the wrestling business. So I would understand anyone not wanting to have them on their team. But he is here, so, like, you don't have to fucking job him out and, like, take his money. So I think it was at Starcade where he refused to put Johnny B. Bad over unless he got a contract, and Bischoff refused to do it. And then, if you believe Bischoff, he fired Honky. If you believe Honky, he quit on the spot. It's just so funny to me, man. Like, these are two of, like, the most bitter, caustic people ever to have a microphone in front of them, and they just love going in on each other. Dude, I would watch a deba- I would like watch a debate between these guys on pay per view. This is just another opportunity for me to put over Honky Tonk Man shoot interviews, which are universally worth listening to, if not necessarily good for the soul. What scumbag! But how fucking funny! Just having huh. says the most vile things about people, but like never like racist. Uh, li- a little bit of homophobia. Well. <laughs> racist or like i don't know there's worse listen the podcast where he goes down that list of urban legends about wrestlers you know the (laughs) one if you've been around in this business for very long is one of the funniest things ever just like robert gibson likes to shit on likes to watch women shit on tables and he's just like yeah that's true he does that shit (laughs) what a snitch just burying people left and right like, the man will do anything for a payday, except do jobs. That's the one thing he'll do. He'll do anything for a check, except do a job. And the best part is in that pot, in that uh, shoot interview is that Raven's the one reading the things to him. And even <laughs> Raven's just like, really? I, fuck. <laughs> do you think he even knew who Raven was? Probably not. It, there's no indication <laughs> that he does. <laughs> just thought he was some dirty guy. Like, I'm here in this hotel room to talk shit about my former co-workers and make $1,000 in a free hotel room, all right? Let's just get this started. I will kind of advocate for Honky here. Wouldn't he have been a perfect TV champion? Listen, I had always... He was born to do this. I had always assumed, in hearing the stories about this time, that Honky was, like, out of shape and washed up. Yeah. Like 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 your Duggins and people like that are. Shouldn't still be in the ring. Honky's in amazing shape here for Honky Tonk, man. This might be the best worked match I've ever seen him do. <laughs> I think he was, in be- he was probably in better shape here than he was during his Intercontinental title run. I wouldn't be surprised. He's trying to get that contract. He's working hard. I mean, honestly, like, the honky-tonk man that you see here is basically, and Jerry Lawler would hate me saying this out loud, Jerry Lawler. It's just, He's even dressed like Jerry Lawler. Him and King hating each other is another thing I love. Again, just the scummiest people. But, but again, 
Even Honky has standards. Like, it's very, very funny when Honky Tonk Man is just like, look, I'm an evil piece of shit, but I'm not that motherfucker. No, even he thinks Lawler is a scumbag. They're like cousins and they don't speak. Yeesh. Okay, so this is a 10-minute time limit. You can guess where this is going. Can you believe that this went to the time limit? My favorite thing about this is that they literally, neither one of them ever at any point in the match tries to win the match. Not even one time. There's like 30 seconds left and Honky puts him in a chin lock. Like, come on. And also, just like, the time limit draw gimmick doesn't work when it's the face defending the title. Yeah, it's just very funny to me. Like... They put in some decent effort. This is fine. It just doesn't work as a match. It's one of the better matches on the show, which is, man, pretty grim to say. Yep. Uh, Next up for the tag titles, we've got the Patriot and Marcus Alexander Bagwell defending against Pretty Wonderful. Man, this is a match made in hell. First of all, this is unrecognizable as Marcus Bagwell. Like, he looks... Like, we've seen him in 1990 look more like himself than he does here. Like, I don't... This is wild. Second of all, Paul Roma here looks exactly like Ken Shamrock, and it was throwing me off the entire match. It does. Yeah. Uh, pretty, yeah pretty wonderful is the team of um, Paul Roma and Paul Orndorff. Um, not the greatest tag team. No, very much not. I love that the crowd started cheering Roma. More Orndorff than Roma, but the crowd cheered the heels here. They po- they popped on the title change. Like I genuinely almost forgot that like they were the, the heels in this match when the title change happens because the fans go kind of nuts for it. Did the Patriot tag into this match even one time? I don't think he did. No, like maybe he was dealing with an injury, which would help explain why they dropped the belts. But yeah, like he's just on the apron this entire match. Yeah, that is weird. Um, The finish comes when Bagwell hits a fisherman suplex, but the referee is distracted, putting Patriot out of the ring. Um, Roma flies in with a flying elbow and that's enough for the pin. And then after the match, Shivani buries the Patriot by saying it was his fault they lost because he didn't listen to the referee's instructions and let his partner get double teamed, which is true, but I was kind of shocked Tony said it. And this is baby Tony. This isn't jaded Tony from later who would just say whatever. Like, that's a bizarre thing to come out of his mouth. He's just like, oh, look at that dumbass cost his team the match. Yep. I assumed Patriot was on the way out, but he was around for like another six months after this. I don't think anybody spent more time in one of these large companies than Patriot did without ever actually doing a goddamn thing. He had a great look, and that was about, I mean, he had a horrible painkiller addiction. I don't know if that had started yet. I know he did when he was in the WWF. Yes, he'll always be remembered for his one random main event he had. The fact that he caused Jim Cornette to lose his mind and almost beat up uh, Kevin Dunn. Yeah, that's right. It was him. Yeah, that was what the the infamous Jim Cornette-Kevin Dunn fight was about, was the Patriot. Oh, Jesus. Why they they were burying the Patriot. Because he sucks, Jim. Because he sucks. (laughs) 
Everybody you Although like is said, fucking terrible. Houston Cornette had a point because why were they ba- why were they ba- burying the Patriot if he was going to wrestle Bret Hart on a pay per view? That is the good point. We just shouldn't be yeah. using him. But if we're going to put no. him on pay per view, you can't bury him. You know, world title match against Bret Hart. Just insane that that happened. Yeah, it just shouldn't have been happening. But you know, here we are. Uh, mean Gene interviews Flair and Sherry backstage. Just kind of the typical Flair promo. Yep. Next up, probably the worst thing on the show, which is saying something. We've got Kevin Sullivan against his fake brother, Dave Sullivan. Dave Sullivan is the dyslexic brother of Kevin Sullivan. He's a big Hulk Hogan fan, which Kevin hates. He's referred to as Evad because he's dyslexic. So I've never watched the footage building up to this before. And I have to tell you that I watched with mounting horror as I realized that this is the exact same storyline as Abyssomania in TNA. Oh, yeah, that's right. Point for point, Hulk Hogan found a random weirdo and adopted him as his Hulkamaniac. Oh, man. Dave has music about how he's a Hulkamaniac. Like they wrote an original wrote and recorded an original song for him. This is foul. It is a very bad song. Very, very bad. Spectacularly bad. Holy shit. This is a horrible match. No one in the crowd is behind Dave at all. They cheer Sullivan Sullivan for beating him up. And, like, there's no one in the world less likable than Kevin Sullivan. So the idea that, like, even he's getting over at this guy's expense... Uh, they fight outside the ring, and Kevin gets counted out after five minutes. Awful match. Just wretched. Yeah. Man, Kevin Sullivan manages to have even an even worse match at Starcade, though, because he wrestles Mr. T. The fascinating thing about Kevin Sullivan is during this entire period, he does nothing but turn in garbage-ass performance after garbage oh. performance while looking like a trash man, and yet somehow... He still got the book, so he's still getting yeah. main events. I was gonna say, I thought you were gonna say like somehow he still gets like still gets these spots, and it's like, yeah, he's booking. Yeah, so he gives himself the spots. Yeah, I mean, I think Flair is nominally still the booker, but like, I don't think Flair ever actually booked. I think that was just like they'd put him in charge, and he would just outsource it to his assistants. The idea that Kevin Sullivan was like, look, I'll be the person in this company who actually does the job, but I'm going to put myself in main events all the time. And everyone looked around and just said to each other, yeah, that's fine. I don't want to do it. (laughs) Next up, we got Arn Anderson against Dustin Rhodes in a match that, like, is both dripping in history and, like, somehow foreshadows a bunch of storylines in the future of wrestling. It's very funny to me that they never actually acknowledged during the course of this storyline that Arn Anderson has famously betrayed Dusty on multiple occasions. Like, because the storyline is basically like Dustin needs a partner to fight Terry Funk and Bunkhouse Buck. And he goes to what he knows is the hardest, badassiest man he knows, Arn Anderson. <laughs> and he badgers him about daddy. it. Yeah, and he badgers him about it. He badgers him about it until Arn is finally like, you know what? We're going to go whoop those asses together. Yeah. And it goes exactly how you think it would go. Dude, a Rhodes trusting an Anderson? Come on. And then fucking Cody did the same thing in AEW. 
it's the most unthinkable thing that like three different roads are just like, yeah, I can trust that guy. Have you ever seen the promo Dusty did where he asked Dustin if he could be his partner? It's incredible. No. No, oh my God. He's just like, I mean, he talks about like neglecting him being on the road all the time, how sorry he is. And then he's just like, I'll tell you what, you don't need, don't go looking for no partner. Don't go looking for no friend. Your daddy's here. Oh my God. So that's basically what this is where Cody, Cody is alluding yeah. to. Yeah. Which we've never talked about that, but that promo literally makes me cry. Yeah. Like I don't need a tag team partner. I need a brother. I need a friend. I need my older brother. And which was literally like their genuine reconciliation as family. Yeah. God, that's such a great, that's one of my favorite matches in pro wrestling history. Dusty or Dustin versus Cody, uh, double or nothing. Tony, can you please find a fucking place to put these pay-per-views on TV so we can cover <sighs> one of them for fuck's sake? I keep waiting for them to seal this deal. This deal with Max has to be coming. Like, there's no way. With Max adding the sports tier, they've got to put AEW on there. It's a moneymaker. We've been talking about it for so long. <laughs> oh, man. So... Arn gets a nice pop as he comes through the curtain. Detroit loves heels. I mean, all the great Detroit sports teams in history have been heels. It's funny because Detroit's definitely like a cheer the heels kind of town. Except for when AEW just came here and like Christian got booed into space. (laughs) And Don Callis. It's like everyone but you two. Even Detroit has standards. Oh, they show Thomas Hitman Hearns in the front row. He'll be interviewed in a second. He's a big wrestling fan. Can't do a show and can't do a wrestling show in Detroit without the Hitman. I still remember the first time that we did one of these shows that he's on. I was like, who the fuck is this guy? And you My were so personally offended. Indignance that you've never seen Hagler versus Hearns. It's like a seven minute fight. You could literally watch it. I don't know. During a lunch break. I have gone and watched it now. <laughs> Incredible. Might be the best yeah. fight I've ever seen, and it lasts less than three rounds. I mean, that's the hallmark of a great fight, really. <laughs> Marvin Hagler. What a stud. Anyway, uh, solid match here. Yeah, I'm a big Dustin fan. Uh, not necessarily his best work here, because I think his uh, demons were already starting to catch up to him at this point. Yeah, unfortunately. But, like, he still is just, like, he's everything that anyone would ever want from a baby face. He's huge, but he's sympathetic. Like, he can, like, do anything in the ring. He can move. Like, but any heel looks good against him because he's so sympathetic. I really think they should have had Hogan mentor him. I think that would have been a really good on-screen partnership. Absolutely. God, that's fascinating is Hogan mentoring Dusty's son. Something feels yeah, wrong Hogan about that. Loved, Hogan loved Dusty. Dusty was his big, one of his biggest inspirations. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily reciprocated, though. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the bump Dustin took here, where he got clotheslined out of the... He, he went for a clothesline. He got backdropped over the top. He even cleared the steps, and he cleared the mats on the floor and landed in the aisle. That was unbelievable for a guy who's... I don't know, 6'6", 250. You forget how big this motherfucker is. Like, he's enormous. Yeah, 
Like, Arn Anderson is a very big man, and Dustin towers over him. Dustin is probably, aside from maybe Hogan himself, the tallest man on this show by, like, a couple inches. Yeah, trying to think of who would even be close. Yeah. Vader. Vader's probably 6'2 or 6'3. That's a good point. Um... Arn takes control. Dustin fires up. They do simultaneous clotheslines. Arn goes for the DDT, but Dustin grabs the ropes as a counter. Arn then goes for a pin with his feet on the ropes. He gets caught, and Dustin rolls it into a pin to get the win. Pretty good match. Yeah, I liked it. Uh, I think these guys absolutely could have had a much better match, and I I feel like the fact that we never got like a bloody brawl between these two feels weird. But again, we're in such a weird nebulous time right now that storylines don't seem to like just start up and stop every month or two. Yeah, there go. There's just there's a lot of uh, creative turmoil at this point, and also uh, Dustin's gonna get fired in about six months after this. And Arn's a guy that Bischoff clearly doesn't see anything in. No. Uh, mean Gene interviews Hogan. He's got Jimmy Hart and Brood Eye backing him up. He just kind of rambles for a while. He doesn't really say anything of substance. Even for Hogan, this is a pretty rough yeah. promo. He has nothing to say whatsoever. Next up for the U.S. title, we've got Jim Duggan versus Steve Austin. Last month at Fall Brawl, it was supposed to be Ricky Steamboat defending the title against Austin, but... Steamboat couldn't do the match due to his back injury that would end up ending his career. Steamboat's replacement turned out to be Jim Duggan, who proceeded to beat Austin in 30 seconds to win the title. Now I know what you're going to think I'm going to say. I know you think I'm going to say that was a disgrace. How could they bury Steve Austin like that? It's an embarrassment. It's indicative of how WCW mishandled Steve Austin. I actually think that was probably the right way to do that. Oh, it was perfect. It's not the kind of thing that made Austin look bad because he got caught by surprise while he was bitching about the situation. And it gave Austin something to do because he suddenly he's out of. Listen, in a just world, the work that Austin was doing with Steamboat should have kept him employed for the rest of his life. That's one of the greatest in-ring feuds I've ever seen. (laughs) Instead. They're literally about to get rid of him, even though he was literally just tearing the fucking house down every night. Yeah, instead he gets stuck trying to carry Duggan's worthless ass here. Um, The fact that they managed to have a watchable match is a tribute to how good Steve Austin was at this point. And he's definitely starting to seem more stone cold at this point. He's starting to get the attitude. I started to go back and watch Raw's from 1999, because sometimes I just go back and watch like a full year of Raw's. And literally, like, it made me turn my head because Stone Cold's voice is coming out of stunning Steve Austin here. And that's not usually how he sounds. Uh, You know, they have about an eight minute match that's more or less watchable. And then Austin gets disqualified for backdropping Duggan over the top rope, which is not a particularly exciting finish. I'm. Kind of shocked they didn't just have Duggan beat Austin here. The ending spot to this match where, like, Duggan grabs the two by four and he's going to hit Austin with it. And Austin, like, runs around the ring, like, in terror and then flees and flings himself over the top rope. 
as Duggan swings for all he's worth and misses Austin by inches is one of the <sighs> coolest like two by four spots I've ever seen. It's amazing he didn't hit Austin in the face with that shot. Believe it or not, this is Steve Austin's last ever WCW pay-per-view match. He's around until about the next summer, but they don't book him on the next couple pay-per-views, and then he has an injury. His last match of any note, he lost to Randy Savage in a couple minutes on an episode of WCW Saturday Night. So we were playing a game before the show started, where we're trying to figure out like how many like actual '90s wrestlers are on this show, like guys who are like from this decade and not the previous one, and there's only like four, and Austin's one of them. For them to run off a guy who can make Jim Duggan look good, because there aren't a lot of those guys that have ever worked in this business. Jim Duggan fucking sucks. It's just outrageous to me how you can ever not have a spot for a guy this good doesn't make sense, especially when your roster sucks this bad. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if we ever talked about this, but Hogan had this whole, or Austin had this whole pitch about how he wanted to be Hogan's like kayfabe nephew because they do. When Austin's got his thin and blonde hair, they do actually look kind of similar. It's actually a good pitch because, like, basically he'd just be Horace Hogan at that point, and maybe that's why Hogan didn't go for it. He's like, no, I already got a useless nephew, and we're gonna get yeah, him on got TV Horace sooner or later. Yeah, but like. I think, honestly, like, maybe that's something that could have happened down the road. But right now, they have, like, a billion things for Hogan to do. So it's not going to happen right now, obviously. Um, but, like, that's one of those missed opportunities. Because I could have really seen that going somewhere. Mean Gene brings out Sting, who is hilariously in a tuxedo. And he says he's going to sit in the front row and watch the main event. He's going to watch to find out who's going to be the man of the 90s. Sting, it's 1994. Dude, we are deep into the 90s at this point. We are in the middle of the fucking OJ trial, I think. We, You literally wrestled a match to determine the man of the 90s five years five ago. Five years ago. Yeah. The first time they were trying to make Ric Flair retire and he got really insecure about it. Jeez. Next up, we've got a Haas match as the Guardian Angel takes on Vader. Um, the Guardian Angel is, of course, the big boss man. I feel like the last time we did one of these, I didn't know what the Guardian Angels were. And that's actually on me because they. this was actually, I mean, this was, I was pretty young at this point. This was a major, like, cultural movement. This is a real, oh, yeah. like, slice of the early 90s that, yeah, the Guardian Angels were all these dudes, um, it's a guy named like Curtis Sliwa or Slifka or something like that who founded it in New York. But they they'd wear these like funny hats, but they were just like vigilante sounds like more violent than what they were doing. But they were just like volunteer patrolmen, like they would patrol like neighborhoods and subway stations and stuff. This is a time like particularly New York is especially crime ridden and dangerous in the early 90s. So they're just kind of stepping up and trying to help. I mean, it was controversial but generally i think pretty well received by i don't know the broader american culture and political establishment of the time and i mean the fact that they were organized and they were held accountable when their members did shitty things like made them a lot more like palatable it's not like these people were batman out here they were just guys who had to like sign up and like be like 
come to meetings and stuff like that to make sure they weren't doing whack, full, fucked up shit. Like, honestly, as much as that thing can be good, I think it was pretty good. It was, yeah, I mean, you know, it was something people felt the need to do at the time. This is a time where crime was, th- you know, much higher than thankfully it is today. Yeah. Remarkable how safe New York City is today, especially compared to what it was like back then. Oh, yeah. Like, just understand that, like, Batman wouldn't have seemed that out of idea in real life back then. That's just how it was. Now, even, I mean, Detroit still has its problems, but so much safer now than it was back then. This is still the Devil's Night era. Oh, man. (laughs) You know about Devil's Night? Is that a thing outside of Michigan? I know of it because I live in Toledo right now, but maybe you should explain it to people in the audience. Okay. Yeah, Devil's Night was the it I mean the night before Halloween. Um it kind of started off as just like a night people would do mischief. It would be like, you know, egg houses and you know, teepees, teepee houses, that kind of thing. And then at some point in Detroit it took like a dark turn where people started setting fires. And at its peak, there were like hundreds and hundreds of arson incidents per year in Detroit on this one night, the night before Halloween. Like it was out of control. And I actually think when it started to change was when the Guardian Angels got involved, which weird that I'm putting the Guardian Angels over, but I do think that was actually kind of a turning point in Detroit. Well, it actually became like an even bigger problem because then people realized that you could like do it for the insurance money. So like everyone started burning their own shit down and blaming it on Devil's Night. I'm pretty sure The Crow, the movie, which of course inspired the Sting um, Crow character, believe that takes place in Detroit. I think he's killed on Devil's Night. Uh, It does take place in Detroit, yes. Yeah. All right, so these two have been feuding since early 94 when Angel was the special guest referee in Flair's loss to uh, Ric Flair at Super Brawl. Um, Vader beat Sting and the Boss Man in a triangle match at Fall Brawl to become the number one contender for the WWE title. That was actually a really interesting match. It was elimination rules. Angel was the first guy eliminated, so it came down to Sting and Vader. And they went to the time limit and then they did five more minutes and they still went to the time limit. So then they did what they call the sudden death period, where it was the first guy to knock the other guy off his feet would win. And it got the crowd just going wild as they were exchanging punches in the overtime. I've never seen it before since, but it was really a really intriguing concept. Definitely a Dusty Rhodes idea. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Because like, you might be like, all right, we got to wait another five minutes for a pin, but a knockdown could happen literally any time. Like, the amount of emotion you could wring out of that. Yeah. Um, Vader, oh, Vader, you know, Vader won that. He knocked Sting off. Actually, I think there was all kinds of shenanigans with that. I think Sting actually knocked him off his feet, but the referee got distracted by Harley Race and whatever. But Vader, Vader won, and he's the number one contender for the title. Yep. Vader so does would, his entrance. Yeah, I was going to say, you would think we're leading to Hogan versus Vader at Starcade, like any sensible person no. would think. Nope. That's got to wait till Super Brawl. Vader goes over and asks Ali who the man is during his entrance, and Ali points to him, which is pretty cool. It's like the yeah. only time anybody interacts with Ali all night. 
Which is fucking stupid. Like, if you're a re- unless they specifically told you not to interact with Ali, you should interact with Ali. I'm sure they told him no fighting on the floor <laughs> over by Ali. Like, the last thing you want in the world is for Ali or his, any of his family members. Because he's sitting there with his, like, his wife and, I think, his daughter, one of his grandkids. Like, the last thing in the world you want is any of the Ali's to get hurt. But if you're like Johnny B. Bad and you're like a big yeah. charismatic baby face who was a former boxer, you're really not going to go over to Ali and like play shadow box star? a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Come on. I think Ali would have loved that. Yeah. Uh, Angel spends a lot of time beating up Harley Race here. This is basically <laughs> a match between Angel and Harley Race. Well, the point where I think it made the crowd feel bad for Harley that he was getting his ass beat so bad. This is during the time where, and I hate to bring this up, but this just puts over Harley Race how tough he is. He literally has a colostomy bag on him the entire time he's taking these bumps, which is fucking crazy. Like your t- stomach could tear open and you could die. Yeah, and in this era, he would still like go up on the top rope and do the headbutt once in a while. It's like, what are you doing, man? Uh, Vader hits the Vader bomb on Angel, but he kicks out. He goes for it again, but this time Angel gets his knees up. I do recall at Bash at the Beach, Bossman actually took the moonsault from Vader. He's one of the only guys I've ever seen actually take it. Yeah, that's the wild thing, is that, like, thank God they finally got somebody big and tough enough that they could actually take it so we could see it, like, once in our lives. (laughs) They didn't Bam Bam take it once too, or am I just misremembering that? Um, I don't remember that, but it wouldn't shock me. Maybe it was in Japan. I don't know. Did he ever take Bam Bam's moonsault? Gosh, I don't know. Now that I think about it, I feel like somebody in ECW did. Maybe yeah. Sabu. Uh, Angel hits a spinebuster for a two count. Race trips Angel. Vader hits him with a splash and pins him. That was a decent big man match. I didn't hate it. Just so many matches you watch during this time. I feel like, boy, I really wish I was watching Vader do something cooler than this. And like, this definitely falls under that category. Like I feel like aside from the flair match and the sting matches and the Foley matches, his entire run in WCW was just me wishing he was wrestling cooler people. Mean Gene brings out Hitman Hearns to interview him. He says absolutely nothing. I think uh, Hitman not doing super great at this point. That is the problem with bringing out retired boxers yeah. to say things is that they're usually not going to cut great Super promos. articulate, no. Yeah. I mean, if you boxed back on, if you boxed back in the era of the 15-round fight, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Boxing's a tough sport anyway, but thankfully it has gotten safer over the years. But yeah, back in the day when it was 15 rounds and the referees would never stop the fights and the corner wouldn't throw the towel and even when guys were getting absolutely pummeled. Yeah, it was I, not I don't think good. enough. I don't think enough was made of the fact like everyone made a big deal in the 80s about how like boxing had more or less died off because at one point it was literally like the biggest sport in America. And then it kind of like died off in the 80s, except for like Tyson and Sugar Ray. But, like, I think a big part of that is, like, when we started to see the legends of our childhood, oh, yeah. like, become that way. I think a lot of people got turned off, like, oh, man, this is crazy. Have you ever seen, I can't think of what fight, it's a fight that Howard Cosell was doing the commentary on. 
And he literally like stopped commentating because he, he was just he started talking about how disgusting it was. Like as a guy is getting absolutely pummeled and the referee refuses to stop the fight, he was just like, and it was literally the last boxing match he ever called. He just refused to ever announce boxing again afterwards. Yeah, there's there's a lot of boxing that is like beautiful and athletic, and it's like this great strategic chess thing. But there's also a side of boxing that's just fucking barbaric and disgusting. <laughs> And UFC yeah. gets like that sometimes, too, and I don't care for it. All right, next up, speaking of barbaric and disgusting, we've got the Nasty Boys <laughs> against Terry Funk and Bunkhouse Buck. Holy shit. Well, you see, Steve, sometimes out on the prairie, you and your weird friend named Terry got to fight <laughs> two guys from New York who rub their armpits on all your animals and you got to put on your long johns and your t-shirts and your jeans. Can we are we going to have to do the bunkhouse stampede? is the we finally do the bunkhouse stampede? I fucking hope so, buddy. We've been honing that buck. Like I remember reading about bunkhouse buck in like magazines like from like back in the day. And, like, I don't know what I pictured a bunkhouse buck looked like, but when I originally, I eventually did finally see him for the first time, I remember thinking, like, this dude looks fucking stupid. His nasty long T-shirt and his jeans and his suspenders. But here's the thing. When you think about, like, great outlaws from the Wild West and shit, like, understand that most of them look like this, like total dickheads. Yeah. <laughs> it was one of the things. Deadwood, I think, mostly got that right. That like, oh yeah, actually, this was just a miserable, disgusting life. There may have been like one guy in town who wore nice suits and was like, that was his deal. But most guys were just slobs because they were on the run from the law and had nowhere better to be. It's insane that Bunkhouse Buck wrestled on WCW Nitro. That is that is. To think that he's even still here now when Hogan's here. It's like, you're a relic from a far distant time. Him and, I can't think of who it is, but him and somebody are the tag champions when Nitro starts. That's fucked. It's just, everything about this show, it's this bizarre combination of 80s WWF and 80s Jim Crockett. And they're just melded together, and it's 1994. Okay. How many acts are there on the show that don't seem dated? It's like, Ooh. Johnny B. Bad. Even Johnny B. Bad is pretty 80s, even though Mark Miro is a newer guy. Austin is a modern, like, 90s wrestler, and that's about it. Dustin Rhodes... Yeah. He's, He's just playing a basic babyface. 80s, 80s white meat babyface, yeah. You could maybe say that Arn is sort of a different kind of that, like, hard-ass dude that we haven't seen before. But I'd say really, like, shoot-fighting giant is Vader. That's new. Austin's yeah. new. And that's it. <laughs> this is quite a bad match. I think my favorite part was just how cool Ming looks in his suit. Really? Bodyguard Ming is the coolest yeah. bodyguard I've ever seen in my life. Doesn't then, like, he look like he's like the like the guy who would be like the dragon in like a Jackie Chan movie back in the 90s? Yeah, like he's the guy who like his boss cripples your wife and like puts her in the hospital and you got to go for revenge. and You guys have the epic fight. Listen. Ming is fucking amazing. But the best thing about Bodyguard Ming is the idea that, like, 
he doesn't have to do anything but stand outside the ring. And then the announcers can be like, hey, man, I heard one time Ming threw a boulder through a McDonald's window. Yeah. Hey, man, I heard Ming one time grabbed a guy's eye out of his head at a bar. These are true stories. And yes. Ming can just be like, yeah, <laughs> but he doesn't do anything. That's so much more threatening because if he's not doing anything, you're like, but at any moment he could just rip somebody's eye out. Uh, this is Terry Funk's last match in WCW until 2000. He quit right after this. I assume his horse got sick. I think mine would if I had to deal with the pit stop. <laughs> yeah, it's remarkable. The health of his horse always uh, coincided with him having to wrestle, you know, the nasty boys or the junkyard dog or someone terrible. <laughs> <laughs> My horse doesn't like it when I wrestle people that I don't like. Funny how that happens. Uh, the finish comes here when Ming accidentally hits Funk and then Nobbs hits Funk with a pile driver on a pumpkin. That's just about the only Halloween thing themed thing that happened tonight. That is a bummer about this show. Is yeah. It's not themed as Halloween Havoc at all because they know that the Hogan Flair match is so much yeah. more a big deal. So maybe they just don't want anything hokey associated with it. But it's just it's missing that theme. Yeah, it just feels like every one of these, if it's Halloween Havoc, it feels like there should be like a Halloween street fight with, you know, pumpkins and some silly stuff. However, if on every Halloween Havoc ever somebody got pile driven into a pumpkin, I would have been cool with that. (laughs) I'd be all about that. Next up, we get a really interesting segment. Uh, We have Bill Shaw, Bischoff, and Ali in the ring. Bill Shaw is the president of WCW at this point out. Remember exactly when I guess I feel like Bill Shaw was Bischoff's boss really the whole time, wasn't he? Yeah, he eventually reported to uh, Harvey Schiller. So yeah. I don't know if Bill Shaw was above him then, but he was variously associated with the company the whole time. Uh, they present Ali with a check for his foundation from WCW. I think Gene tries to get Ali to say something, but he doesn't want to. And then Bischoff presents a plaque to Ali. This is a nice moment. I, you know, always, I always love seeing Ali honored. Thankfully, you know, the world came to see that he had been right when he took his stand against the Vietnam War. Absolutely. The the idea that any man who had been vilified to the extent that he was would yeah. eventually go on to be the most beloved sports figure of all time is just an incredible testament to the man himself. Yeah. Also, like that's not that's not going to happen for Colin Kaepernick. No, 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 no. Even if we do eventually acknowledge that he's right, it's the pure greatness that Muhammad Ali was that like yeah. eventually convinced people that whether they agreed with him or not, he was still the greatest of all time. Um, the other thing is too is that do you think this is the closest they ever got to getting Ted Turner on TV for them? Because I bet Ted wishes he was here. He did do. He did the contract signing, right? Yeah, he did a contract signing. I think he did one. I think he did. He did some. He, I think he did. I think he was there when they signed Hogan. And I think he did the Hogan Flair contract signing. And I, he definitely did the press conference for Sting versus Hogan. Yeah, but that was all pre-tape stuff. Like, yeah. this, like, it would be very, I bet that they could have, like, talked him into it somehow. Like, hey, come be on our show. Like, you're literally just going to hand a plaque to Muhammad Ali. Doesn't yeah. that sound awesome? Yeah, maybe him and Jane Fonda were busy this weekend. Maybe that's what it was, yeah. He was probably in a sailing race or something, doing his Ted Turner stuff. He did like that very much. Very good sailor. 
Okay, main event time. Steel cage match for the WCW title. We've got Hogan defending against Flair. Mr. T comes out first to referee the match. They'd been teasing that he had been bought off by Flair. They all but said he had been. It seems bizarre that that's where this match is going. Like, I understand that Mr. T is just kind of part of Hulk Hogan's entourage at this point. But having it not be like an actual wrestler, it's just so kind of odd. Like, I almost would have rather this had been Sting. And then, like, Flair being like, yeah, I bought Sting off. He doesn't like you. You're an outsider, Hogan. And Sting being like, no, I would never do that. But maybe, like, kind of hint that maybe he did. That would be such a hey, more interesting str- direction. We've certainly, st- we've certainly struck gold before with Sting being suspected of being a turncoat. Yeah, God knows eventually, two years from now, they're going to do that and launch the Set hottest the angle of all time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Flair gets a huge pop when he comes out here what novation this is he has the smuggest smile on his face yeah. walking to the ring because he knows these are his people and this isn't even like again detroit is not really flair country it's not no, like this it is never has been. or georgia no this is a hogan town but even here hogan gets a mixed reaction even in what's historically been a really strong city for him but He's just an outsider to WCW fans. And we've made a lot of the fact that, like, WCW fans and WWE fans aren't always the same people, especially at that time. A lot of culturally, they didn't necessarily cross over a ton. So while Hulk Hogan was obviously super well known by WCW fans, they didn't have love for him. They didn't grow up with him in the same way that, like, I did. He was the enemy. Yeah, he was the other guy. That showy piece of shit from up north couldn't wrestle a lick like our Ric Flair. And now here they are, and we got to pick a side. We're going to pick Flair. But also, yeah, yeah, Hulk Hogan fucking sucks here. Literally, the NWA, you know, 1989 when WWE was the NWA, their slogan was, we wrestle. And that was a shot at Hulk Hogan. They would bury, without saying his name, usually they would bury Hogan on commentary on every WCW show. Because Jim Ross would just be like, look at this. These are two real athletes in there wrestling, not posing, not talking about it. They're in there wrestling. I mean, just realistically think about this. Roman Reigns, we all universally agree, is pretty fucking awesome now, right? If he came to East, to AEW and wrestled Kenny Omega, he'd get booed out of the yeah. stratosphere. Of course he would. Because that's just how it is. That's the enemy to this group of people. And it was the same way back then. Uh, they shoot off fireworks as they lower the cage. And, oh, my God, did this thing. This thing almost came down sideways. One of the pulleys was not working. Dude, and, like, Flair, <laughs> Flair's looking at this thing as it's, like, diagonal. And he's, like, and he's in the ring, and he's like, I don't know, man. God, you know what I just realized? This isn't even the only steel cage retirement match these two guys had. They had another one at Uncensored 99. And it also drew huge for no particular reason. It did. (laughs) And Flair Flair won that time, so he didn't have to retire. But literally, like, this match and that one are both matches unstuck from time, where these two men get into a ring and, like, 100,000 more people than usual buy it. Got him. They finally finally, finally ran out of luck with the Yappa Pie strap match in 2000. Yappa Pie! The apple pie strap match. 
<laughs> I missed the explanation, but I didn't really catch what the rules are here. Um, I know that Michael Buffer was explaining the rules, but then Tony Schiavone starts talking over him, so I don't yep, actually know what, what they happened. are either. I don't know. I, I, at one point, Heenan says something about winning by escape, so maybe you could have won by escape in the cage. I mean, that's not what happens, but sure. <laughs> Hogan manages to start fast, but Flair manages to take out his knee and get control. He works that left knee that was injured at the Clash of the Champions. Hogan hits a clothesline to turn the tide. He gets Flair up on his shoulder, runs him headfirst into the cage. They fight up on the ropes for a while. Flair falls and gets crotched, and Hogan does the thing where he, you know, bounces him up and down on the ropes, which I always pop for. Absolutely. That's just a great spot. Shockingly, Flair didn't get his trunks pulled down here. That's like the only time I can ever remember that happen, not happening in a cage match with Flair. That's a good point. He must have like thought back when he was back in the hotel and been like, fuck, I forgot to do my favorite spot. Got to do the ass spot. Maybe he can't do the ass spot now that there's more eyes on the product. I would. Uh, I'm amazed that he and Hogan never did a double ass spot or that he and Michaels never did it. Uh, Flair once again goes after the knee. Uh, T shoves him when he rips the pad off Hogan's knee. That's bullshit. What business yeah. is that, Mr. T's? This is a cage match. There's no rules. Literally anybody could do anything in this match and they would be perfectly fine. <laughs> Flair hooks the figure four. Hogan turns it over to get out. He tries to clothesline Flair, but Flair ducks and Hogan hits T instead, and now things are going to get really stupid. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Sherry tries to climb up the cage, but Jimmy Hart grabs her and accidentally rips off her skirt. That gets quite the pop. I, you know what? Sherry knew exactly what to do to like make her moment like shine. Like, God bless that woman. Uh, Sherry climbs again. This time Sting jumps the rail in and pulls her down. The masked man comes out from under the ring and he beats up both Sting and Jimmy Hart. Sherry. There's a moment here where Sting is like a couple feet up the cage pulling Sherry down and the masked man grabs him down. And do you think it flashed through his head like fucking Doug Dillinger? Gonna blow my quad out again. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, I loved how much better Sherry was at climbing the cage than Beefcake. Oh, man, she was fucking scaling that thing. Uh, Sherry climbs into the cage. She handcuffs T to the rope. The masked man hits Hogan with the pipe, and then he leaves. Flair suplexes Hogan, but he pops right up. Hogan fires up. He slams Flair. He slams Sherry. Hogan hits the big boot on Sherry. He hulks up. He boots Flair. Leg drop. T is able to count the pin even while he's handcuffed. The legendary career of Ric Flair is over. I like the idea that, like, Flair had all these ideas for how he was going to cheat to win, and then all of them, he does them, and they're all completely worthless. Like, none of them work. That's actually kind of cool. That's just to watch Hogan just fight off all this stuff. Yeah. 
Also, how much would you have paid for a pay-per-view with Hogan and Sherry in the main event? God, I think everybody was going to buy that. Because honestly, the reaction they got. They feuded for like 10 years straight. Man. What did you think of this match? I just thought this was some very silly shit. It's bad. Like, it's a bad match, but like, it's... It's not bad in such a way that if I had left, I would have been, like, hugely disappointed. Um, what's about to happen would have disappointed me. <laughs> but Man. the actual match, I've been like, yeah, I got my money's worth. It's fine, I guess. <laughs> Meltzer gave this four and a half stars, and I have trouble with that. I, <laughs> I don't normally get I try to avoid star rating discourse, but that one just kind of baffles me. I mean, this is maybe the best match Hogan has had in 10 years, but, like, that doesn't make well, it a good the match. match with, the match with Flair at Bash at the Beach was way better than this. That is true. But, again, Meltzer wholeheartedly believed in the stipulation, so maybe he was just tearing up thinking that Ric Flair was gone for good. Yeah, Meltzer wrote a vi- – he both wrote a tribute to Flair and a very indignant, like, paragraph about – I mean, he didn't really say it this way because his writing tends to be very unclear, but basically said, like, it was disgraceful that Ric Flair was at, like had to put Hogan over here because, like, Hogan doesn't deserve that. And I'm just like – Dave, it's Hulk Hogan. And he's going to, like, much to, I think, the shock of the Dave Meltzers of the world, he ended up turning around WCW's business. Yeah, stunning that he's capable of doing that, and that's why he wins all the time. Yeah. Like, like of course Ric Flair's going to lose to Hogan. It's Hulk Hogan. Also, Ric Flair loses matches. That's what he, he does. Anybody. When did, as Flair himself says, he only won 16 matches in his entire career. It's just they all happen to be for the world title. Yeah. And then he, like, DQ'd his way out of every single yeah. other match he ever had. <laughs> Put people in the figure four 10 million times. You never beat anybody with it. That's why it's the perfect finisher for him, because it's useless and never yeah. worked. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay. After the match, Flair just disappears. Flair just fucks off. Again, like, you can tell this isn't... Compare this to how emotional the match with Vader at Starcade was a year before this, when he won and didn't have to retire. But the comparison here between, like, this... Of course, this is a fake retirement, but it's amazing how unceremonious this is. It's not even really acknowledged that he's done. He just disappears. Well, yeah, that's the funny like, we got to get him out of the ring so we can do the fucking angle with Brutus. Oh. Like, you can't honor Ric Flair for one goddamn second. Hogan goes and shakes hands with Ali. That's pretty cool. Hogan poses. The masked man return. Hogan beats him up and rips off the mask to reveal Brother Brutai. Okay. Now, two really funny things about this. Number one, um, they pull off the mask. It gets zero response from the crowd. I don't think people even knew who it was. To the extent that, remember earlier in the show, yes. they were like broadcasting yes. to the crowd on like a, a loudspeaker. They do it here where Tony's yeah, just like, that's that. Brother Brudeye. Because I think that they realize in that moment, like, oh, I don't think anybody knows who this is. Yeah. Like, he's been around a little bit, but he's just kind of been in the background during Hogan's promos. He has not been featured. 
And he's like, he doesn't look like Brutus Beefcake. No, his and he face can't got have all it. messed up in the parasailing accident. And he can't use any element of that of gimmick. Yeah. yeah. Like, they can't even call it, they can't call him Brutus or Beefcake. They literally call him Brother Brutai. Like, nothing about him looks like the person who was at one point pretty over a decade ago. Yeah. Like, I... <clears throat> Shivani keeps calling, he's like, he's butchered their friendship, which is because he's okay. going to be, his character's going to be the butcher. Yes, because then Earthquake runs in and beats up Hogan. And he's and, like this avalanche of a man, which, of course, his gimmick is going to be the avalanche. He just keeps saying those two things over and over. This man <laughs> who butchered the avalanche. friendship and this avalanche of a man. Oh, my God. Sting finally shows up and makes the save, and that's how the show ends. But, God, what a clusterfuck. And after this, we're building to Sting, which Brood Eye versus Hogan at Starcade. At least Hogan versus Earthquake would be going back to something that drew in the past. Here's what this should have been. If we have to do Hogan versus Brood Eye, and it sucks that we have to do, or uh, Hogan versus Brood Eye in some way, Brood Eye should have managed Earthquake. Because yeah. the friendship between Hogan and Brood Eye is compelling if Brood Eye can cut a decent promo about it. Be like, I had. I had your back your whole career. I carried I carried your fucking weed through airport security, brother. <laughs> I got your steroids in my bag right now. Oh, just for him to be like, I was your best friend forever, and you never even saw me as worthy of a title shot. So now I'm going to destroy you with the other man who you never respected enough when he was there. But it sucks that neither one of them can be Brutus Beefcake and Earthquake. So they're just like two chuckle fuck dickheads who don't look right. Hmm. All right. End of the show. Not great, Bob. No. <laughs> Not great. Oh my god. Even compared to I feel like Bash at the Beach a couple months before this had so much hope and good vibes for comparison. This is just it's obvious. Like They've played their cards with Hogan and Flair, and they just don't. I mean, Hogan versus Vader feels like it should draw, but it really didn't. And I think it's just because they didn't. I don't know. They they wouldn't they wouldn't let Vader beat Hogan. And really, nobody comes off as a credible threat to Hogan. Maybe Vader could have, but you had to have him beat him first. But also, Hogan's not going to get sympathetic babyface pops from this audience. He's just not. Like, and I don't think that's a thing that even if they had understood it, they could have done anything about. Oh, man. This show just not good. You know how bad the show was? Just to give you guys a little, like, glimpse into what it's like for us. So Steve usually watches these shows earlier in the week, and I wait until, like, literally right before we record to watch them so it's fresh for me. And so I know a show is especially bad if he texts me at like six o'clock on Monday, just like, hey, are you, uh, are you watching the show? This is you, what do you think? Because obviously that means that this show sucks ass. <laughs> oh, man. But you sick perverts just love to hear us talk about Halloween Havoc. This is maybe the least Halloween-y of any Halloween Havoc, unfortunately. 
Got to do it for our lawverts out there. Y'all are the perverts that keep us in business. This is what you like. Okay. <laughs> uh, next time, going to take our first trip to the Attitude Era in a very long time. We're going to cover No Mercy 1999. And I feel like this is kind of a sleeper episode because I don't think that's a show that people really remember. But there's a lot of big and interesting stories going on in the WWF at this time. Like, including one of the most stunning things that happens during the entire Attitude Era with the Jeff Jarrett leaving WWE situation. Yeah, Jeff Jarrett holding up Vince for money or he won't do his job. For the second time. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you trust this man? Oh, uh, God. We got the ladder match between the Hardys and Edge and Christian that puts both teams on the map. Um, it's so funny that all four of these men are now in AEW actively wrestling yeah. week, weekly. The, they could have another ladder match. Please, God, don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. That's bad. Don't do not do it. Uh, we got The Rock versus British Bulldog. Yeah, Mankind versus Val Venus. All the matches you want to see. Fabulous Moolah versus Ivory. There's going to have to be a stump, Steve, about the oldest wrestlers to ever compete on wrestling pay-per-views, isn't there? It might just be. You never know. Brother. Um, yeah, plus the WWF going public, you know, Triple H, you know, how Triple H was doing as champion, Vince Russo uh, very abruptly bailing on the WWF two weeks before this pay-per-view. A lot going on in October of 99. Yes. And anything from this period on the lightning round is going to be exciting because there's, like, tons of shit happening. Everybody was was snitching to the dirt sheets back then. God, you gotta love it. (laughs) So, yeah. We'll have all that more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.